primarily what I'm going to talk about is, is Holocaust denial and the changing nature of Holocaust denial in recent years, over the last decade or so, and how things have changed again in some ways when it comes to what's happened this past year or so under the pandemic and some of the opportunities that has opened up. And I think part of this is about trying to get to the very core of understanding how is it that fascism can exist after the Second World War? Right. And, and one of the answers to that question is how is it after people have seen the horrific images and video footage and newsreel footage of, of bodies being pushed into trenches by bulldozers in Belsen and Buchenwald and once this footage emerged, how is it people could still believe that fascism was okay and central to this is the emergence of Holocaust denial. So I'm going to talk for you uh, kind of a few things here uh, and then we'll have plenty of time for questions at the end. Now. I thought I'd start briefly with a little bit of, of polling, really. Um, there's lots of polling on Holocaust and all levels of it around the world, and, and the polling is very varied in terms of quality and usefulness. But a few things generally come through when you poll around Holocaust denial, uh, both in the UK, but also internationally. Uh, the number of people who completely deny the reality of the Holocaust continues to remain, thankfully, relatively small. Um, however, that said, there remains huge amounts of ignorance around the Holocaust, despite the huge efforts and ongoing efforts of things like the Holocaust Education Trust, the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust in the UK, um, things like Yad Vashem. Uh, there's huge amounts of effort and, and policies, and uh, we still have a huge amount of ignorance around the Holocaust. A recent poll uh, of North America found that a people aged between 18 and 39, almost half of them, 48%, could not name a single concentration camp or ghetto. Uh, established during the Second World War, which is, seems kind of surprising to most people, but actually, you know, uh, there's other numbers that back this up. More than half, 56%, said they had never seen, or so that they had seen, sorry, Nazi symbols on their social media platforms and or in their communities. And almost half, 49%, had seen Holocaust denial or distortion posts on social media or elsewhere online. So we've got this mixture, this potent mixture of people coming across pro-Nazi content and Holocaust denial, but also remaining ignorance of themselves, often of the true facts of the Holocaust. And when we've done polling in the United Kingdom at Hope Not Hate, which is where I, I currently work, worryingly 14% of young people and 19% of young men think it's true that Jewish people have an unhealthy control over the world's banking systems. Moreover, 15% of young people and 20% of young men say that it's true that the official account of the Nazi Holocaust is a lie, and the number of Jews killed by the Nazis during World War II has been exaggerated on purpose. Now these numbers are vast, right, when we're talking about this. And one of the things we always have to keep in mind is that in the contemporary age, especially with online culture, there is some people and increasingly large numbers of people where outrage or controversy uh, is part of online contemporary culture, causing anger, causing outrage. And so some of the numbers, especially when it comes to some of the younger people that we're polling there, um, there remains a question whether or not they actually believe the Holocaust didn't happen. They might just be ticking a box to make people angry. But whatever the case is, that even shows to me a lack of seriousness when engaging with the Holocaust, that that would even be uh, coming across in that way. So I guess in short, their outright Holocaust denial, the idea that it is a complete myth remains relatively rare, sometimes usually between kind of three, four percent, five percent, depending on where you look. Uh, in Europe and uh, Western Europe and North America, the numbers are uh, very, very worryingly high in parts of Africa and, and the Middle East, uh, the numbers get even higher. But in terms of the Western Europe and North America, the numbers remain relatively small. Much more common is, is an ignorance of the historical facts of the Holocaust or increasingly a disregard for the historical significance of the Holocaust and the uniqueness of the Holocaust. And I'll come on to this 
um, in a little more depth. Now, I wanted to start kind of properly in terms of talking about how is the pandemic affecting this? I mean, it seems slightly strange to think that the pandemic that's ongoing might somehow affect Holocaust denial, but, but there's some really worrying trends we're seeing. Generally speaking, it is, I'm sure you've seen these people that have been kind of meeting and gathering in central London, but also with monitored groups and demonstrations around the whole country. Some of them are just anti-lockdown groups, and there's lots of people within there that, that have, you know, pretty much no pernicious bones in their body. They just don't believe in lockdown or they are concerned about their business, etc. But there's also the more uh, conspiratorial and dangerous element of it. And it's often easy to dismiss these people as amusing or strange or these kind of conspiracy theorist groups as a bit bit mad but actually the truth is that they often are not particularly harmless eccentrics as we might like to think and the truth is that conspiracy theories are actually the lifeblood of hateful uh, hateful extremism uh, they provide an evil enemy of which to blame the world's events and personal misfortune. And, and just often if you scrape below the surface of many of the misinformation campaigns around COVID, vaccines and the like, there is a powerful secret hand running these events. And we know where that leads, right? That leads to anti-Semitism, that leads to the idea that there is a secret Jewish cabal running the world, which has obviously been called the warrant for genocide. Social media, any monitoring of contemporary social media, you'll find is, is generally speaking awash with conspiracy theories related to the current pandemic. Uh, this could be the dangers of 5G internet, it could be hidden microchips in vaccines, it could be the role of both the Chinese government and Bill Gates in intentionally spreading the virus. Uh, all of these sorts of elements, we see all these varying types of conspiracy theories mixed in with anti-vaccine conspiracies, anti-lockdown beliefs, anti-mask beliefs. And what we've started to see is these various conspiracy theories become linked together in what you might call a super conspiracy. And whatever the case, we've seen extremely large uptick in the number of people engaging with conspiracy content online. Some of the groups on major social media platforms rapidly grew into the hundreds of thousands uh, in the past year. And what I think is important here to understand is that in some ways, as I say, it's very tempting to kind of write off conspiracy theories as, oh, this is a, you know, a strange guy down the pub who believes the moon landings were faked. But actually, I think it's better to conceptualize this as a bookshelf. Uh, the conspiracy bookshelf which starts with what you might call relatively harmless things like the moon landings and as you work your way along through the bookshelf you get to increasingly extreme things and one of the last shelves on the book is holocaust denial once you create a mindset that no official story is ever true it becomes increasingly easy to question the idea of things like the holocaust now one of the things that i'm especially worried about in terms of holocaust denial and the pandemic is we are witnessing Holocaust deniers consciously pushing denial on conspiracy sites and in conspiracy groups. We're seeing individuals go into the groups that might be local anti-lockdown groups that might be talking about anti-vaccine content and pushing in there and saying, well, you can't trust official narratives. Here's a perfect example. Watch this documentary on the Holocaust. And the, and the documentary will question whether or not the Holocaust was real or question the historical facts of the Holocaust. Traditionally, the way we see people getting involved in Holocaust denial is that a hope not hate's job is to monitor the far right primarily. We look at all sorts of discrimination from the, from the left and, and from mainstream political parties, but overwhelmingly we monitor the far right. And traditionally what you would see is you'd see individuals get involved in far right politics and move towards increasingly extreme positions with time as they radicalize. Moving towards increasingly extreme, and that means often increasingly anti-Semitic organizations and narratives. What we've seen this past year uh, increasingly is, is we're starting to see that a new pathway 
towards anti-Semitism emerging, one by which the incremental steps that build towards Holocaust denial and admiration for Hitler are in fact a progression through different conspiracies, uh, through different conspiracy theories, which may contain anti-Semitic undertones, but in other cases may not. Uh, we've picked up concrete cases of individuals being radicalized towards Holocaust denial, anti-Semitism, uh, who started relatively soon before just joining a local group that was talking about lockdown. So kind of a Holocaust deniers consciously preying in these online spaces and consciously paying people that are susceptible to conspiracy theories. Beliefs in conspiracy theories slowly chip away at an adherence trust in any form of evidence or proven history to the point where their minds are supposedly, as they would say, opened uh, to increasingly anti-Semitic concepts. Uh, and this anti-Semitic Semitism can essentially be a byproduct of these conspiracies, but it remains important and worrying. So this is something that we've seen in the last year. But I think this is, should be understood in a broader shift in the nature, uh, a significant and important change in Holocaust denial uh, in the last uh, decade or two. In one sense, the, the point of Holocaust denial has changed. So the, per, the, the, the primary focus of Holocaust denial, my, I wrote a book that came out last year called The, the Birth of, uh, uh, sorry, British Fascism After the Holocaust. And, and essentially in that I talk about how Holocaust denial, I think actually could be argued started in Britain amongst fascist circles in, in 1943, 44, 45 in the UK. And the question is, why did people deny the Holocaust when, uh, when Holocaust now first emerged? Well, its traditional function was to eradicate the primary hurdle to the resurrection of fascism. People had seen the newsreel of, uh, of the Holocaust. People had heard the hor horrifying stories, understood that the Holocaust was the logical conclusion of this type of hatred. And so people thought that on, within fascist movements and the post-war fascist scene decided to deny the Holocaust to try and remove that problem. And this was done through essentially pseudo-scientific research designed to cast doubt on the official historical record. Uh, in some ways, the kind of original fake news, if you will. And you will have heard of anyone who's kind of interested in this world will have heard of some of these big names. David Irving was the big famous British Holocaust denier. You'd have Ernst Zundel, Frederick Leuchter, Robert Farrison. These were the big names of post-war Holocaust denial and they would fill big rooms and they would sell large numbers of their books. And what's interesting here is these people essentially sought academic, uh, academic credibility and mainstream acceptance. They operated within the uh, you know, epistemological norms of the time. They wrote history books they tried to look scientific and sound scientific. They created their own bogus academic titles, scientific statuses, false descriptions, and they essentially were playing the game and saying the way we will prove the Holocaust didn't happen is by using the language and lexicon of academia. Uh, you know, the claim is in the case of Sundel and David Irving that they had previously been Holocaust believers, but they had their eyes opened by evidence. You know, then they would do a number of things to try and deny the Holocaust. You know, this is, I think, sometimes worth touching on because the first question you often get when you talk to a person about Holocaust denial is how could they, how would anyone deny the Holocaust? And it's not often that on the most extreme ends, there are people that say it just didn't happen. Uh, um, and especially extreme anti-Semites and extreme fascists would argue that. But there's also more nuanced ways in which people deny the Holocaust. Some, for example, emphasize only the death camps and ignore the Einsatzgruppen on the T4 program. Some people question eyewitness accounts, which of course in all cases, not just in the Holocaust, but in all cases can often be difficult uh, and changing. They would use sophistry over specific expressions like special treatment or final solution used in Nazi documentation to try and say that, um, you know, the Holocaust wasn't what people said it was. 
they would use the uh, absence of a direct written order by Hitler for mass extermination as proof that Hitler didn't know about it or Hitler didn't know about it and that, that it wasn't planned. Or they would relativize the uniqueness of the Holocaust, illustrated by things, for example, they would compare it to other world events or other histories. Or they would claim that the, the murder of the Jews was a reaction, for example, to Allied bombings uh, or the Jew, supposed Jewish declaration against the German people. They would mess with statistics. That was another area, talk about uh, fake death statistics, or they would kind of uh, move things around. The whole thing is here is that they were essentially trying to use the language of academia. They would use science to say there was no evidence of gas in the gas chambers. You name it, it goes on. And these narratives still exist within the, the Holocaust in our world. But essentially, this traditional form of Holocaust denial, these big figures of the post-war period, that scene has gone into decline, which is very positive. The traditional denial scene is not what it was. It's been in decline for some years now, shrinking audiences, and many of the key figures are dying out. Um, David, uh, Robert Farrison died in 2018. You know, David Irving, I had the mispleasure of going to see him speak numerous times a few years ago, was speaking to rooms of six or seven of us. Uh, at his peak, he was filling lecture theatres and selling huge amounts of books. The crowd that is getting engaging in this type of Holocaust tonight is in some ways dying out. And there's a whole host of reasons for this. You know, consistent societal disapproval has been really useful here. It's politically ineffective. The ease of finding other ways of expressing anti-Semitism or delegitimizing Israel. Uh, you kind of name it, there's a lack of novelty. There is the movement is aging and dying. So while those things still exist, there was a new threat that's emerged in the age of the internet when it comes to the changing nature of Holocaust denial. And I think this is really important. There is a new, uh, younger, often anonymous uh, and resource denial movement that we now monitor at Hope Not Hate. Traditional denial scene has been overtaken in some ways by a much younger tech savvy generation of anti-Semites who are much more adept at propagandizing online. And there's a few things to touch on here. One is the ease of access. The transition of small publishing operations to websites has happened. You know, for most of the post-war period, pre the internet, if you wanted to get hold of Holocaust denial books, you had to write to organizations, Holocaust denial organizations, ask for book lists, buy them, send, send a, a postal order or money and receive a book. You knew where you were getting it from. It is firstly important. You couldn't stumble across it and presume it was a, a normal history book because you didn't have to buy normal history books like that. And you couldn't buy them in bookshops, usually. Now it's easier than ever before to distribute Holocaust denial material anywhere in the world, no matter what laws exist against it. You can have laws in Germany and Austria against Holocaust denial. You can get it, you can find it online easy enough. Uh, despite the efforts of companies like Google and Amazon, denial material remains online and is, is easier than ever before to find and get hold of. And there's a huge amounts of this and lots of this is those old books by those individuals I was mentioning, but you no longer have to buy them from some uh, Holocaust and I outfit on the west coast of America or based out of the UK. You can just find it by Googling it, you can download it for free in many cases. There is also huge amounts of Holocaust denial on mainstream social media platforms. Thankfully, in the last six months, Facebook has changed its policy on Holocaust denial and said it's no longer allowed. But the fact that uh, it's taken Facebook that long to move to that position, I'm not, I don't think it's time to give them credit for that. It's, it's well overdue. But you will still find Holocaust denial on social media platforms. And many of you will have heard newspapers or read newspaper articles or heard journalists in the last few weeks talking about new social media platforms like Parler and Gab that people have been moving to after some of the events in North America 
again, this Holocaust denial is awash on those platforms and, and extremely easy to find. You don't need to buy a specific book from a Demar mailing list, is what I'm saying. You can find it and you can stumble across it now. That's really important. The other thing is the slightly differing nature in this. Right? Fred Leuchter, I mentioned, was speaking at Holocaust the Revisionist Conference in the early 90s, said, uh, I'm an engineer and a scientist, not a revisionist. But because of what I have seen, I have a responsibility to the truth. Because of this responsibility, I'm calling for an international commission of scientists, historians and scholars. He's speaking the language of academia. If I take a, a contemporary example from a website called The Daily Stormer, which was for a period the largest neo-Nazi and anti-Semitic website in the world, they had a headline that was Germany, British woman investigated for denying kooky fake shower room hoax. Huge difference in tone there. Uh, one of the things that this, there was a style guide for that website, which was leaked, and they could to, to focus on something called lulls, but, but more being essentially being humorous. They discouraged their writers from using any intellectual tone, what they called no college words. And I always kind of go back to this quote, which is uh, there was an American neo-Nazi called Mike Enoch, who runs a podcast called The Daily Shower, which kind of gives you a slight idea of where his politics are. Um, and his view in some ways typifies one of these shifts we're seeing in Holocaust denial. He did a tweet on, on Holocaust Memorial Day a few years ago in 2018. He said, here's the thing, Jews, real or fake, I don't give a fuck about the Holocaust, okay? And why I think that's important is the changing nature of the far right in some ways is that instead of, for the fascists of the immediate post-war period and for much of the post-war period, the Holocaust was an obsession. It was the major roadblock to resurrecting the politics to fascism. For contemporary fascists, especially younger contemporary fascists, the Holocaust is history. Uh, and they, they increasingly they don't care about it. And they're as interested in laughing about it or diminishing it is, as they are in spending huge amounts of time writing massive books to discredit the historical record. Another thing I just want to touch on, I'm nearly kind of done now, but one of, uh, is uh, the anonymity that is at play and involved in this. Obviously, Holocaust deniers have long tried to keep anonymous in some ways using and writing under pseudonyms and the like uh, but they still published books and often they were exposed the nature of the internet means it's possible to be active in denial circles completely anonymously now as i said the social cost of activism is much lower there is now a vast online army of far-right activists acting completely anonymously without the danger or risk of being ostracized from society for doing so in a way that happened with major holocaust denialers of the post-war period that were often even arrested uh, certainly in parts of continental Europe for engaging in this activism or things like the David Irving trial with um, Lipstadt in the UK when it was an, uh, an international news story and David Irving was on the front cover of newspapers around the world as a Holocaust denier. Uh, that doesn't happen in some ways in the sense that now you can sit in your bedroom in Australia and you can write about Holocaust denial and send Holocaust denial to Jewish synagogues in Germany or Britain or America and no one will ever find out who you are. Hence why the fear of what we call doxing, this revealing of identities is so prevalent in the far right, because they, many of them engage in far right activism without social costs nowadays. The other element here I think is important is youth. Um, the alt-right, which, which Nathan mentioned, um, but, but the far right more broadly, is attracting young people. In, in the last few years in the UK, we've had a record number of terrorism arrests from the extreme far right. And a number of the people we monitor are in their teen, uh, teenage years. You know, we revealed a neo-Nazi terror gang called the British Hand uh, just a few months ago, and their leaders were kind of 15, 16. 
a leader of an international neo-Nazi terror network, was found to be 30 last year. Um, there's a huge amount of young people getting involved in this sort of politics. Primarily the people we'll look at are often in their teens or their 20s. And I think this is an important point to make. It's important because we have seen the historicization of the Holocaust. Many of the individuals that we monitor at Hope Not Hate that look at, uh, that engage in Holocaust denial were born after 9-11. For them, the Holocaust is history. The Holocaust can often seem like ancient history. It can seem like the Napoleonic Wars. And so in some ways, for many of us, where the Holocaust is this huge historical touchstone, the Second World War is the national touchstone in some ways. Uh, any idea that someone that would diminish the importance of the Holocaust or the severity of it or laugh about it or joke about it uh, seems pretty outrageous and disgusting. For some people that we will, uh, the, the young people that engage in Holocaust denial, it's just ancient history. Uh, this the, the kind of idea that it's this important thing that has to be grappled with, like fascists of the immediate post-war period, is not there anymore. And it's also, there's a huge element of what we call online antagonistic communities, hope not hate, but essentially we mean this type of online behaviour where things like causing offence are really important. Troll culture, as it's often called. And if you've got this perfect storm here where there is a thing called the Holocaust, which they not understand causes huge outrage if you mock it or deny it, but they also simultaneously themselves don't care about it because it's seen as ancient history. You know, we've seen trends on TikTok, the social media app last year, where people were pretending to be Holocaust victims uh, as a game. And they weren't doing it, many of them, in a really pernicious way, or they weren't trying to push fascism. But for them, it was, you know, it was a joke. The Holocaust was just this historical thing. And I think that's worth understanding and something that's only going to happen increasingly as time progresses and we move to a stage with fewer and fewer survivors. So I think there's a few things I want to touch on here. There has been a decline in the tradition, uh, traditional pseudoscientific denial movement. The idea that the Holocaust must be removed as the primary obstacle to the return of fascism. We've seen that. It still exists. I don't want to say it doesn't, but it's, it's not what it was at its peak. We've seen the rise, instead of that, of a new, more frivolous, ironic, uh, mocking form of Holocaust denial that has emerged out of a specific form of online antagonistic cultures. And we've seen the emergence of a new audience for denial through this rapidly growing conspiracy movement. And this is one we're going to have to watch extremely closely over the coming years. How many of the people getting involved in conspiracy theories in the last year or so during the pandemic go down that rabbit hole far enough towards anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial? That's going to be a big one to watch. So there's a kind of slight overview. I've been I will finish on a slight note of positivity in that um, while this is all very, very worrying and it needs to be taken extremely seriously and tech companies need to take it extremely seriously and continue to do more, the number of people that engage in outright Holocaust denial remains a very small fraction of the British society and, and generally of Western Europe and North America. Um, one of the major things is not just to fight against Holocaust denial, but to continue the work of educating about the Holocaust because lack of knowledge on the Holocaust is just as worrying in some ways and much more prevalent.